And I don't, I have no idea how to get from where I am to where they are. And it seems like a completely, you know, it, it's a, it, it has to be a miracle that there's no way I can make it happen. So we're going to talk about work and we're going to talk about love. And then I guess talk about ministry a little bit as well, just because that's what I'm sort of doing. But in so much as I talk about ministry, uh, well, I guess, I don't know, is it different than work? I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit different, but it's essentially work because after all, we do believe in uh, what uh, the reformers called the priesthood of all believers, which is that you know, nobody's, uh, nobody's profession is inherently more valuable than anyone else's. Um, so to start, I thought I would read, I'm not going to read the whole thing, although it's not that long, it's only a couple of pages, from uh, March 20th, New York Times Magazine, the one with the prominent Muslim on the cover. Um, this is just amazing, actually. The, the, the title of the article is Outsmart, Outwork, Outrival, and Outdream. And the subheading is James Franco, Tiger Moms, and Limitless. Has anyone actually seen Limitless with Bradley Cooper? Has it come out yet? No one is. Yes. Has no one seen it? I might have to see that more with curiosity. Um, but anyway, how James Franco, Tiger Moms, and Limitless all show just how imperfect our idea of perfection has become. And uh, being kind of a mockingbird uh, nerd, you know, a theology nerd, just the first paragraph of this totally, I, I sort of couldn't believe it. So here's what he says. And it, she says, written by someone named Karina Chocano. I have no idea who she is, but I want to uh, figure it out and write her an email or something. But here's what she says. So, so it's the late fourth century, and you're a British monk named Pelagius. Now, if you're, a, if you're, a, if you're sort of a mockingbird, automatically your ears prick up because Pelagius was this British monk who was... He was just a super hard ass, basically. And he, he sort of thought that human perfection was achievable. He thought that the grace that God had given us was the grace of our free will, and we could choose to obey the law, that we could choose basically to be good enough to deserve to actually get into heaven. And Pelagius and Augustine had this uh, huge battle where Augustine said, no, that's completely untrue. Um, there's nothing we can do. We're only saved by grace. We're, we're beyond saving. We're completely sinful. And, and Augustine knew this from his own experience because before he became, uh, you know, the most influential thinker in Christian history, um, he was a, a notorious womanizer. You know, his, the, the famous Augustinian prayer was, Lord, give me chastity, but just not yet. <laughs> that was his famous prayer. Um, but he, you know, he was, he was well acquainted with his own sinful nature and, and he saw all around him that, that people were just inherently flawed. And so they had this huge battle and there was a huge council and luckily Pelagius lost. And so Pelagianism is now uh, considered a heresy of the early church, but at the same time, or really a heresy of the church, but at the same time you see it everywhere. You see it all the time. You know, this idea that, uh, you know, live your best life now, right? Uh, Joel Osteen may not be a full-on Pelagian, but he's a semi-Pelagian, at least. He, he thinks that sort of, you know, because, you know, full Pelagianism, and sorry, I'll just dive, divert for a sec. Full Pelagianism is you believe it's all up to you. You know, God has told you what to do, and he's given you free will, so therefore do it and get into heaven. That's full-blown Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism is, you know, you do your part, and God does his part. You know, just do your best. And God will sort of make up the rest. That's semi-Pelagianism. And then Christianity is, uh, is uh, God does everything and you do nothing. You know, you're, you're, the, uh, you're the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel, right? Where the spirit of God comes and gives life to that which is dead. And actually, you know, semi-Pelagian is so prevalent. Have you ever heard of the, the little illustration where I say, you know, imagine, you know, that, that imagine you're... Uh, sort of floating in an ocean and you're about to drown and, and God just puts his hand down. All you have to do is take his hand. 
You know, or you're, or you're dying in a bed and, and someone gives you this pill and all you have to do is swallow the pill, right? You only have to make that little choice. You only have to open the door. You only have to, you know, pray the prayer. You only have to make the choice and God will do the rest. That's semi-Pelagianism. If, if you ever heard that type of language about Christianity, that's semi-Pelagianism. Uh, because, again, Christianity is that God saves you by fiat. You know, he sort of uh, creates life where there was none you know, ex nihilo, that he, he does everything and we do nothing. So, all that being said, I'll get back to my article. Sorry about that, but, but it's important. So, you're a British monk named Pelagius. You travel to Rome and are appalled by the low moral standards of the place. Maybe you're stuffy, but you attribute the general air of laxity to Augustine, who believes man can attain perfection only through divine grace, not human effort. This sounds to you like an excuse not to try. You believe free will means that we are free to make good choices and that we should be severely punished if we don't. So you track down Augustine in North Africa where he tells you to take it easy. A guy can strive for perfection, but can do only so much. And then she goes on a little riff about Limitless and the Adjustment Bureau, that Matt Damon movie. Has anyone seen that either? That looks, is it any good? Yeah, it's actually really good. Cool. And so, you know, the, 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 the question that the Adjustment Bureau brings up about sort of free will versus fate and limitless is about this guy who discovers this pill. Actually, she says what it is. But this guy who discovers a pill that sort of allows him to use 100% of his brain. And so he goes from being someone who's struggling and a failure to someone who's, who's wildly successful in every possible way. And he becomes fabulously rich and he can get any woman he wants and, you know, uh, uh, becomes, you know, the toast of the town or whatever. Um, so here's what she says in a bit. A limitless which is the one about the guy who takes the pill who lets him use his brain, in all its pulpy glory represents the logical terminus of a certain pattern of modern thought endlessly fueled by the culture. If you can theoretically become perfect, then it follows that you should at least try. This idea that man is perfectible and so should strive for perfection has been around for 2,000 years, but it has lately been streamlined and turbocharged. In its contemporary incarnation... It regards any unfulfilled human potentialities as a particularly sad and sclerotic form of entropy. In other words, if you are not being all that you can possibly be, you're worthless. You're, you're a sad sap, and you could be doing better. Um, and I don't know about where you live, but I definitely feel that in this city. I feel that in New York. And I'm sure this person lives in New York, too, and so feels it, too. She goes on. As for the rest of us, in other words, uh, the rest of us being people who aren't perfect, and the Tiger Mom uh, reference I made before was this article about two months ago in the Wall Street Journal, this excerpt from a book uh, by this Yale law professor named Amy Chua, who wrote a book called uh, Tiger Mothers, about basically how, you know, she's a, Chinese, she's a Chinese mother, and she is actually Chinese, but she means that as sort of a, a term for a, a mom who demands perfection for her children. She is a Chinese mother who has raised two music prodigies. And so, and she, the, the article starts off by saying, you know, here's a list of things my kids were never allowed to do. Watch television, have playdates, have sleepovers, play any instrument other than the piano or violin, not play the piano or violin. And it just goes on and on and on to basically say that she completely robbed her children of any freedom or any kind of childhood, but that it was all worth it because she was a perfect parent and now her kids are perfect too. Seriously, look it up. It's insane. And it, 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 um, it caused quite a, a hubbub. Anyway, as for the rest of us, we are confounded by our own collective lust for, for, for perfection and by its obviously soulless results. 
Do we need all actresses to weigh 80 pounds? Wasn't it better when sometimes people chose the wrong thing to wear at the Oscars? Weren't the child stars of the 70s and 80s somehow more poignant with their cowlicks and freckles? Which leads us, as all roads do, to James Franco. It's true. The guy, I mean, he actually, he blew it at the Oscars. But um, do you, anyone, does anyone not know who James Franco is? Okay, he's this actor. But on top of being an actor, he's also uh, getting a PhD at Yale, but also teaching a class at Yale and starring in General Hospital and, like, writing plays all the time. And, and sort of, he, he's sort of also a, a conceptual artist who's almost taking on this, um, he, he's almost doing this ongoing project about, I don't know, parodying himself. And he was in 127 Hours. He's very good looking. He's an amazing actor. I mean, he's just, he's a supercharged, superhuman. He's, he's um, Nietzsche's Ubermensch. That's what he is. But he blew the Oscars, so thank God. Um, <laughs> he is the personification of this very modern conundrum. We're not sure whether to praise or mock him for his superhuman efforts at intellectual and artistic self-improvement. We're further confused by the fact that it might all be undertaken as Dadaist spectacle. Could be. Uh, kind of like was Joaquin Phoenix on Dave Letterman a couple years ago. Um, to this anxiety of self-improvement, we add the anxiety of authenticity and so find ourselves dogged by anti-perfection and the question asked by mom, why not just be yourself? You know, why not just be ourselves? Why try so hard? We mock Chua, that's Amy Chua who wrote the book, and Franco because their version of perfection is so lofty and rarefied and seems so dauntingly hard we're not sure what to think about Simmons and Oprah, she wrote about her late, the, earlier, earlier on, whose spiritual uplift makes a brand of uh, self-transformation that has less to do with becoming a better person than with becoming better than other persons. Uh, and Timothy Ferris just freaks everyone out. Still, we're forced to acknowledge that of all possible outcomes, this is the version of perfection we've signed up for, that you must outsmart, outwork, outrival, and outdream everybody else or consign yourself to a life of frustrated obscurity or worse. Perfection has always held a kind of promise, but this conception of it sounds less like a promise than a threat. I mean, boom, you know, that's, it's an incredible article. So, um, what can I say about this? I feel this in my bones. I'm sorry to be autobiographical, although I, I sort of let myself off the hook because I remember someone once saying, you know, the reason I tell my own story is because it's the only one I, I know is true or it's the only one I know by heart. And there is some sense of, you know, what, what's going on in my heart is going on in your heart too, I think. Um, I feel this. You know, I remember sitting uh, and talking to a, a doctor friend of mine uh, who's very successful, who actually is very wise though too. And he, uh, it's fine, this is a, an aside, but he had a little bit of, uh, he always wears a little bit of scruff. Um, which is really uncommon for where I live. Usually all guys are totally clean-shaven. And one day I saw him clean-shaven. I was like, Stephen, you, 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 you shaved your beard. He's like, he's like, yeah. He's like, you know, RJ, the reason I have some scruff is because um, there was this magical thing that happened where my career started to take off at the moment where I stopped caring. And that actually is what I kind of want to talk about. Um, and so me keeping the scruff is almost a reminder to myself that, you know, he didn't say this, but what he's expressing is that it was a reminder that his success was not sort of, you know, through his effort, but almost in, sort of in spite of it. That it just kind of had, that he sort of stopped shaving, and then he became, you know, the number one orthopedic surgeon in Manhattan. 
and started making insane amounts of money. But at the same time, uh, the thing that he said to me that was not helpful, which I carried around for a, a long time, is he said, you know, RJ, every person I know who's really successful works really, really hard. Um, and that may be true, but that is uh, oppressive. That is oppressive. That, that if you want to be successful, if you want to be something, that you have to be a super person in the way that, uh, you know, Amy Chua is, in the way that James Franco is, in the way that, my gosh, Oprah is, or, or any of these people that we sort of, um, you know, maybe aspire to be or look up to. Now, of course, this, you know, I, we like to think that this doesn't exist in Christianity, but of course it does. Uh, and this is where maybe me being a church planner counts for something, because this idea of sort of being a super person exists uh, nowhere more in Christianity than in kind of the, you know, the wave of uh, entrepreneurial ministries that, uh, that are sort of, you know, uh, taking hold in America right now. You know, the people who are planting churches, people who are starting new ministries, basically people who have to go out and raise money um, are working their butts off and are, are, are trying to be or often seem to be, you know, the James Franco of Christianity, um, and, and they're working themselves to death. But, but the, at the same time, what I've also discovered is I talk to more and more church planters, and especially, you know, successful church planters, you know, people that you look up to and you aspire to be, is that there's always two stories, right? There's the fundraising pitch, and there's what actually happened. Always. Um, I think it would be, I would love to, to sort of uh, edit a book someday called, you know, What Actually Happened, My Experience in Church Planning, and have, you know, Tim Keller and Mark Driscoll and uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know if you know who those people are, but these sort of, you know, stars of church planning talk about what actually happened, about their uh, depression, about, uh, you know, when God showed up, it wasn't because of their effort. Because I, I will say, you know, I, I've talked to some of these guys and they'll, they'll say to me, RJ, you know, I wish I could uh, say that, it, you know, it took off because I did this and this and this. But basically, I sort of did my thing. And God showed up, and it was completely untamable. In other words, uh, I had nothing to do with it. And, and, I've, and I've experienced that. I've been in ministries that just kind of took off, and it, and it was like, you know, I was sort of along for the ride. I was riding the wave, which is exactly the same thing that my doctor friend experienced, right? He started to become wildly successful, and he sort of didn't know why. It just kind of happened. But at the same time, uh, you know... We come, to points in our, we come to points in our life where that's not happening, where we're not riding the wave, where it's not, you know, we're not moving from strength to strength, where there's not tremendous success, where we reach these points of impasse where we're not the successes that we uh, thought we might be, that we wished we might be, uh, whether it's professionally or, again, in our, uh, in our relational life. And the question is, when that happens, because that seems to be more the rule than the exception, you know, I even remember when I was working for this other ministry and things were going fabulously well, I, I said to one of my bosses, I said, you know, um, now that things are going well, I have no problem giving God all the credit, but I know that if things ever start going badly, I'll just blame myself. You know? I mean, sometimes people do the opposite. Like, they take the credit when things go well and they, and they shirk the responsibility, but I'm the opposite. I just, I think everything's my fault, basically. And maybe you're not like me, and I hope you're not. Um... But that's just true. You know, I, I said, I hope when things aren't going well, I can say, you know what? Pray, you know, what does Job say? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a place of freedom to be in, to see that all things are of God. 
But the question is, what do we do when we find ourselves in the midst of failure, or at least, um, maybe not failure, but you know, we're not where we thought we would be. Things aren't going the way we planned. Uh, and the first thing, before we get to swingers and uh, Conan O'Brien, I actually want to be a little bit more evangelically. Um, and I wouldn't play this except for the fact that it was on NPR, but it's actually, it's Eugene Peterson on NPR. Um, and he just came out, and I, I haven't read a whole lot of his stuff. I'm not quite sure how I totally feel about him, but this thing actually is amazing. Uh, he wrote an autobiography called The Pastor, and he, in this clip he's going to talk a little bit about a dark time in his life uh, when he was in his early 30s, which is how old I am and maybe how old some of you are. But just uh, listen to this. When Eugene Peters spoke... I'm just going to fast forward. ...not study, using the words to do something you want to do. As a young man, you were in your early 30s when you became the pastor of uh, the Presbyterian Church, Christ the King, uh, near Baltimore. And you stayed there for almost 30 years. Um, was there ever a time where your confidence, your faith, was shaken a little bit? Yeah, in 30 years after um, I called the Badlands and they... My competitive instincts weren't working anymore. Um, yeah, there were six years when I, I just didn't know what I was. Nothing was seemed to be working. That's a long time. It is a long time. How did you get over it? Did it just pass, or did you have to really work at it? What answer do you think Guy Raz is expecting? Did it just pass, or did you have to really work at it? <laughs> well, see, that was the problem. I was used to working at things. And now working at things didn't Did make you? any difference. So I found some people to talk to. I started running. Uh, I was always a runner in school. And, uh, started running. I didn't know adults ran. <laughs> so that became a way to be competitive without being competitive. Um, so it was, it, was, it was many of these things. Um, we started keeping Sabbaths. My wife and I, the most important person in teaching us how to do this was, uh, was Abraham Heschel, uh, the Jewish rabbi. So we, we just kind of lived into that Sabbath world of rest. And we were almost like Orthodox Jews in what we did. We took it seriously. So there were a number of things like that. Um, it wasn't just, it wasn't a program, it was well, maybe I, it goes each step in arrival. Each time, each thing you did led to something else. But after about six years, I, I can't tell you just what happened, but all of a sudden it just seemed like here I was. I was, I was whole. Um, all that stuff had gotten integrated into something which was more like a joyful, obedient life rather than a striving, mastery life. What? Okay, so um, I, I hope you could hear that, but you know, he says, uh, that was just the problem. I was used to working at things, but now I'd reached a place where I had no idea what I was doing and nothing seemed to be working. And so what did he do? Uh, he started running because he liked to run, and he started taking Sabbaths. Um, and he says, you know, eventually, after six years, it only took six years, um, that, that would crush me, uh, he, he reached a place where he went from you know, a striving, mastering life to a joyful, obedient life. 
And what I think, uh, what, what Eugene Peterson is saying there is, uh, he gave up. He gave up. You know, he, he, he did some things. He did some things he enjoyed doing, but he essentially gave up. And, and he said, uh, I can't do this anymore. Uh, it's not working, so I'm going to stop pretending like I can make it happen, like I can be James Franco, and I'm going to let God be God, and we're just going to kind of see what happens. Um, and I think, you, you know, I guess what I want to say is I, I do think that when you reach an impasse, the only solution is to, uh, is to give up. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll play, let me play the swingers clip now, because this is from a totally different perspective. Uh, but this is, um, just, it's the very beginning actually, so it should be totally, uh, totally self-explanatory. If I can find it. Here we go. Uh... Okay, so what if I don't want to give up? <coughs> you said I don't call if I wanted to give up. Right. So I don't call either way. Right. So what's the difference? There is no difference right now. See, Mike, the only difference between giving up and not giving up is if you take her back and she wants to come back. But you can't do anything to make her want to come back. In fact, you can only do stuff to make her not want to come back. So the only difference is if I uh, forget about her or just pretend to forget about her, right? Well, that sucks. Yeah, it sucks. So it's just like a retroactive decision then? I mean, I can, like, forget about her and then when she comes back, maybe I can just pretend to forget about her? Right, although probably more likely the opposite. What do you mean? I mean, at first you're going to pretend to forget about her, you might call her, I don't know, whatever, but then eventually you really will forget about her. Well, unless she comes back first. Mm, see, that's the thing, is somehow they know not to come back until you really forget. <laughs> There's the rub. There's the rub. Watch as far as it goes so far. Okay, that's all we watch. 
so, so in case you didn't get it, so he moved from New York to L.A. thinking he was going to get this part, but then he doesn't get the part. He's a struggling actor, and now he's, you know, he, he kind of, she kind of dumped, it's sort of ambiguous whether she dumped him or he left her, but he's wondering, when is she going to call? And I guess she dumped him. When is she going to call? When is she going to call? When is she going to call? And what his friend is saying, she's only going to call when you don't care if she calls. And, and it, you know, Eugene Peterson only finds uh, sort of peace and success when he doesn't care whether he'll, he'll find peace and success. You know, that my doctor friend only starts, you know, being successful when he stops shaving and stops caring so much. So, like, you know, and, and I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to say that, uh, you know, you can't... It actually said so uh, profoundly here. You can't just pretend to stop caring. You have to actually stop caring. And when we talk about control, you know, all of us want to give up control... But no one ever does. And the only way anyone ever actually gives up control is when it's pried from their cold, dead hand. You can't choose to give up control. God takes it from you by way of uh, usually pain and suffering. And that's his gift to you. Um, and I want to say that this idea of giving up being the only solution is a... I want to connect to the Bible, obviously, that it is a biblical idea, right? That... What Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, my God, my God, you know, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, that what he does is he, he gives in to the will of God. And, and someone said, and I think it's true, that, that for that, for, for the Garden of Gethsemane moment to really be what it is, there has to be at least some doubt in Jesus' mind about what's actually going to happen after the cross. You know, I, I guess, I think I performed those miracles, I think God's a my, you know, has this all just been a charade? Because I, I think I, I've been talking about crucifixion. I sort of know what's happening, but maybe it's, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I'm not who I thought I was. Maybe I'm going to die. That he, he gives up in that moment in the garden and goes to the cross. Or Paul, you know, there's that great passage in Corinthians where Paul's talking about the thorn in his flesh. And he says, you know, three times I cried out to God, you know, take this away from me. But God said to me, uh, my grace is sufficient for you, for in weakness, my power is made perfect. In your weakness, my power is made perfect. Or perhaps most uh, poignantly for me are the Beatitudes, which, of course, you know, the Beatitudes, the, the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, those who mourn. And the Beatitudes come before the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus sort of crushes us with the full weight of God's demand on our lives. You know, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, and brings us to our knees because we see that we cannot be what God demands that we be. But then we go back to the Beatitudes, which are the preface to the Sermon on the Mount, and we see, oh, what, what did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the the meek, uh, which is sort of the, the, the injured, uh, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That when we're at our lowest place, God is most palpably with us. And this is, uh, you know, we've this come up a few times in there. This is what we mean when we talk about the theology of the cross. 
that, you know, Luther had this idea, he called something, that there's a theology of the cross and the theology of glory. And all of us are theologians of glory, which means that we believe that God is showing up when things are going well. When we are successful, when we are going from strength to strength, when nothing could be better, that is where we believe that God is. But what Christianity shows us is that where God is most powerfully is bleeding and dying on the cross. That the most horrendous uh, uh, act of travesty that has ever occurred in the history of the universe was also the site of God's most profound work in redeeming the world and redeeming us. And, and what that means in our lives is that, again, in those moments where we reach the impasse, God is, God is doing something. You know, he's, he's breaking Eugene Peterson of his sense of control. And by the way, you, you, another amazing thing I actually I heard secondhand he said was at a pastor's conference when, uh, when uh, one of the pastors raised his hand and he said, what do you do when you've got so much on your plate and there's not nearly enough hours in the day and you're totally overwhelmed and there's just nothing you can, you are just you know, up to your eyeballs in stress, what do you do? And Eugene Peterson said, uh, you go to your office and you lie on your couch and you read a book, not the Bible, a novel. And you read that book as long as it takes you to realize that your ministry has nothing to do with you. Because Eugene Peterson is someone who was broken of his competitive spirit. He was broken of his sense of control. And and a man like that who has been broken graciously by God, terribly yet graciously by God, is a man who can offer comfort to suffering people. You know, when I heard him on NPR, I wanted to weep. Because what it says is that um, when you're suffering, uh, it's okay. It's, it's, not, it's not the end of the world. That, that, that the, the peace that comes is with knowing that it's okay that you're not always peaceful. You know, the joy that comes is by knowing that you don't always have to be joyful. That wherever, you know, he said this other thing, every step in arrival. That it's not, it's not rungs on a ladder. We're not, you know, it's not a, it's not a contest it's where you are is where you are. And that's where God wants you. And God knows what he's doing. And uh, to know that is profoundly hopeful. And that's what we mean when we talk about a theology of the cross. And I think that's what Mark is talking about when he's talking about uh, living in the midst of the chaos and being comfortable with the chaos and not trying to fight the chaos but to know that God is in the chaos. Okay, so if this is true, what does this mean for how we might live? If this really is true that we can sort of embrace the chaos, embrace the hurt, not try to fight it, what does it mean? Well, I think what, uh, what Eugene Peterson, well, I, you know, I talked about that already. Let me go to Conan O'Brien. <clears throat> um, I love Conan O'Brien. Every night, my wife and I get in bed, watch, go on TBS.com and watch Conan, and we laugh our asses off, and it's really awesome. Um, but he's someone who uh, has been through some massive depression. You know, in case you don't know, he got the Tonight Show. It was his dream job. He didn't promise it for five years. Then he was fired. He basically sort of forced out after a year, and then went into massive depression for about six months. And and now he's back on TBS. You know, he calls his band the Basic Cable Band and makes a joke about being on TBS all the time. Um, but I remember when he was first taking over the Tonight Show. There was again big article about him in the New York Times Magazine, and this one quote to me stuck out. And he, the quote was. Uh, and this is when he had just ascended to the heights of everything he had always... He was living the dream. He was glory, 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 glory. He said, you know, in comedy, the best you can do is figure out what you think is funny and then distill that into the purest uh, signal you can and then just put that signal out there and do it over and over and over and over and over again. 
and hope that it works. And if it doesn't, at the end of the day, you pack your bags and you say, thanks for the opportunity. Now, of course, that's not quite exactly what happened when he got forced out. But what he was essentially saying was uh, the best you can do is to do the best that you can do and to love what you do, to do what you are called to do. And that's what he did. And you know what? It didn't work out. And his cross moment was getting kicked out of NBC and off the Tonight Show and having to work at CBS. But I will say, um, to me, what Conan O'Brien shows, because I think he's funnier now and freer now than he's ever been, and he's able to to sort of uh, talk to suffering people. You know, like uh, the last episode I was watching, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal was on promoting his new movie, and Jake Gyllenhaal now has a beard, and they were sort of talking about their beards, and he was saying, Conan, you 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 have a great beard. And Conan's sidekick, Andy, who's also one of his best friends, from off uh, camera shouts out, well, it started as a depression beard. Which, and Conan goes, that's true. It started off as a depression beard. <laughs> you know, he, he stopped shaving because he was depressed. Uh, and now it's sort of become this new symbol of what he is. But the fact that he can talk about his depression and his failure and make fun of himself and sort of connect with broken, suffering people on a nightly basis, is that's, that's an incredible, that's incredible. That's an incredible gift um, but what that also shows us uh, is that, you know, God is going to take us through these cross moments, through these deaths, because that's a title that, you know, death and resurrection. He's going to put us to death time and time and time again. And then he's going to raise us to some kind of new life. But chances are we are going to have no idea what that new life looks like. If you'd said to Conan, if you'd said to Conan you know, three years ago, you're going to be on TBS in three years. He would have been devastated. But I actually think he, he might be... I've been watching him for a long time. He seems to be the happiest that he's ever been and the freest that he's ever been. So the new life we're going to have is going to look totally different than what we think it's going to look like. You know, Eugene Peterson went through his massive, dark, his, his badlands, as he calls them. And he did actually end up becoming incredibly successful, but, but through this thing where he, you know, he started to... Uh, do some translations on his own of the Bible and, and give them to his parishioners, and then it became the message and sold 15 million copies. You know, and, and he, no one is more surprised than he is after being in this tiny little Presbyterian church out of Baltimore for 30, outside of Baltimore for 30 years and being a nobody, a total nobody. Um, or let's watch, uh, let's watch a little more swingers. This is from the end of the movie, and he's been obsessing about this girl the entire time. And then this happens. Heather Graham just turned 40. Hi. I'm, uh, I'm Mike. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm Ray. It's like the key. Yeah, the key. I like the key. Yeah? Well, I thought you meant to like the my, my reputation seems to have preceded me here. You know who it is? Not lately. You're funny. You're fucking hurting feelings. It's all fun. It's all. Oh, it's all. It is so. Uh, uh, it's okay. We'll be in LA and I'm Wisconsin, so I'll meet here. Just like that. Well, you know. 
together uh he gets his number at the end and now we're just going to fast forward to the next day and he's going to wonder here about uh how long he should wait before he calls her because they have this whole thing that if you call a girl too soon then she'll think you're desperate so you have to wait three days and then maybe she'll take you seriously and they have all these rules about how to respond to a woman Yeah, hey, I 
so let me get rid of this. Hello? Lorraine? Are you on the line? Yeah. Oh, hang on a second, Dan. No, no, you hang on, okay? I want to I wanna talk to you. Just hold on. Hello? So I heard you might be moving back to New York. Yeah, listen, I don't think that's going to be happening just yet. Uh, can I call you right back? Well, I'm going out of town for a week and can't tell us where. Can you stop me in five minutes? Look, there's somebody holding on the line. I have to take this call. I really want to catch up with you, but uh, I, I have to take the call. So just, uh, I'm going to call you back when you get back into town, okay? Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. Billy, you sure? It's all right. All right. All right, bye-bye. Bye. I love you. Hello? Hi, oh, you guys know me the line of that. No, that's okay, I want to talk to you. You know, I really could have called you back, but you know, I pressed you waited two days before my friend said, but God, I can tell my schoolgirl, and she said, you have to sing, okay, it's a room, it's just an office for a day. You want to call your husband, you know, your time. Uh, I understand why you know, it's coming back. I just want to know if you might want to go with me. Yeah. Oh, now she's your ex. She was always my ex. Yeah, right. You hung up with her. I wanted to take care of the car. But she sent me all the back. I did. You call me? Huh? Why not, Mike? Didn't occur to me. Didn't occur to you. been uh, tearing yourself up about this girl for six months. Been crazy. Yeah. Well, Michael Alfie. You know, man, I didn't understand it either. It's all so hard. Then they hit me on the way over here, you know, like a ton of bricks. It's just so simple. When you need to, wait a second. I'm getting fired up in a really weird way here. This girl's looking at me like she knows me a little bit. You don't recognize me? Oh no, I could have been up to see and drinking. I told her I was a race car driver or something. I don't think I remember this girl. I don't think I've ever met her before. I would definitely remember this one. She's got a lot of confidence, man. She's doing like... Wow. Mike, stop, stop, stop. Stop. She's playing a little game like a fun thing. Come on, you little party girl. That's it. Come on. Fun little game. You want to play fun little games? Come on, nasty little cute little baby. <laughs> Mike, 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 Mike. Stop, stop. Fun little baby game. She don't know me. She doesn't know my address. You know my address. You are a boy. Hold on, she's kind of playful. She's kind of she's like a wine with me. But I do like the great vibe, like the fun vibes. So, um, 
So you call her up, right? And you say, why don't you call her? You said you didn't call her. Why don't you call her? Mike. Mike. Okay, so you got, if you haven't seen that movie, you got to see it. It's hilarious. Um, so she only calls when he stops caring if she's going to call. And again, and I guess I, let me just say something about falling in love for those of you that uh, are single. Um, it is, it's a miracle. It's always a miracle. I'm, you know, I met my wife in coat check line at a dance club here in New York City when we were both living in California, a mile away from each other, but had never met. And I went up by myself that night, by myself, which I've never done before or since. And, you know, it is true. Like what my friend says, you know, I'm standing there in line thinking I'm never, you know, that night, 15 years ago, thinking I'll never meet anybody. And then uh, suddenly I meet the woman that I am now married to and have two kids with. It's a miracle. And there's nothing you can do to control it or make it happen or anything. It is just, it's a gift. And we see that here, where he comes here and he's a total pathetic, sad sap next to this very attractive woman. And she just happens to have the same story and they just happen to connect about the same things and they happen to like the same things. And it just, it's a miracle. It just happens. It's a, it is a free gift, as uh, Mark Galley was saying. And so what we see here is that the best things, I think that, you know, the best things in life come when you least expect them. And when you've given up on them happening. And that, again, success is not going to look like, you know, success or resurrection, delivery, whatever, deliverance, whatever you want to call it, deliverance, that's not quite the term I should use. But, um, you know, whatever you want to say, it's not going to look like what you think, you know, what you think it's going to look like. He thought his girlfriend would call and they'd get back together. But actually, God had a totally different and much better plan for him. And who knows how this relationship worked out, but you, you understand what I'm saying. So at the end of the day, I think all we can say, and, and what I want to say to you, and I say this to, to myself, I really say this to myself because I don't believe this. I mean, like I said, we, I, I call myself a, theology, a theologian of the cross, but I'm actually a th- theologian of glory. I, I can't help it. I, of course, only ever want to be successful, ever, and I never want any pain, ever. Um... But at the same time, hearing from Eugene Peterson and seeing this movie and thinking about Conan O'Brien gives me hope and peace and joy knowing that God knows what he's doing and that I don't have to be in control of things. That God knows what he's doing and God loves me and loves us. He really does. And he's in control. And... um, Things actually are going to work out well. Maybe not in this lifetime, but they will work out well in the end. That God wins in the end to our benefit. That he has won already, even if we can't see it. And that in light of this reality, the best we can do is um, to do what we're called to do and to do what we love to do. Like Conan O'Brien said, you put the signal out there, you do it over and over again. At the end of the day, if it's not good enough, you pack up your bags and you give a tip of your hat and you say thanks for the opportunity and you move on to the next thing that God has for you uh, because chances are it will be better you know my wife and I used to joke when we were about to come to New York and this could still be true we said we don't we know we're called to New York to go try and plant a church we're not sure if we're called uh, so that it'll happen or so that we can fail miserably and be happy moving to Iowa but at the same time I know people who have left New York 
to go to Iowa, or, you know, Charlottesville, but pretty much the same thing. Um, <laughs> and they're happier now than they have ever been. You know, that the, uh, what does Paul say when he's talking about the law? The thing which I thought would be, the thing which promised life proved to be the death of me. But what we actually find is that when God does his cross work on us, the thing that we thought would be, would give death to us, proved to be life to me. You know, the thing we fear the most ends up being exactly the thing that we need because God knows what we need. And most of the time, we are fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting because we think we know what we need or what we want. But we actually have no idea at all. Absolutely no idea. And that when it actually, when it, when it, when it finds us, you know, when Heather Graham finds us in a bar, it will be, you know, uh, metaphorically speaking, it will be... Uh, a miracle, and we'll be so thankful, and we'll know that we had nothing to do with it, and we will turn to God and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, praise you, praise you, praise you. I had no idea what I was doing, but you knew exactly what you were doing. Um, and that's, you know, that's where he wants us. That's a place of liberation, and freedom, and peace. That's all I want to say. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's all I want to say. Any, any questions or stories? I would love to hear stories, if people have stories of this kind of death, death and resurrection in their life. Or if anything I said sounded totally heretical or unclear, please feel free to ask me questions as well. Um, but that's, that's basically all I want to say. Yes? Absolutely. They really crushed it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that's true. I mean, I think it begs the question a little bit of which is more oppressive to just work really hard all the time or to work really hard all the time and pretend you're not working or something like that. You know, it's just, it's a whole nother level of, uh, it's just a different kind of oppression. But that's, I mean, that's absolutely true. Like, I remember I had a friend in the city who went from being in a, 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 a pharmaceutical sales position to a ministry position, and she said the toughest thing for her was getting home at the end of a nine-hour day and feeling worthless because she hadn't worked 14. Honestly. And it, is, and it is true. People brag all the time about how many hours they work and how late they stayed out. And, and it's... Uh, I mean, that's, I don't know, I mean, is that, is that, is that a city thing, or is that other, it's got to be other places too, it's everywhere, right? Isn't it? Yes? No? Maybe so? Yes? Oh, yes? Okay, good. Um, so yeah, it's, it's crazy out there, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's an organized assault on anything resembling peace and contentment. <laughs> Anything else?
Yeah. That was his secret to success. Yeah. And again, yeah, we we frame success loosely, but you know, yeah, I mean, if you, if you can have some modicum of of sanity in the midst of an insane world, that's uh, you know, you're doing okay. I will actually. I, yeah. I mean, all, all I can say is, you know, I remember a morning, maybe a couple months ago, one Saturday, and things kind of descend on me on Saturday a little bit because, you know, as soon as I try to take time off, then it's like everything just, you know, and I just remember sitting in my bathroom. And crying for about half an hour and being like, what the hell, God? Seriously. Like, what are you, you know, what are you doing here? Why is this so hard? Why? Throw me a freaking bone here. You know? But seriously, I mean, honestly, and, and, it's, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I feel, I, you know, not to be overly dramatic, but I feel like I'm in the death. You know, like here I'm planning a church. It's going okay. We're not setting the world on fire or anything. Of course, I, you know, 
but, but I'm going through that death of like, you're right, I thought, I thought I'd be more successful than I am now. I thought this would be easier than it, than it is. I thought, you know, I thought that once, you know, people wouldn't come for a while and then just leave for no apparent reason. And, and, uh, and the bat, for me, the huge internal battle is, is just not to take everything so personally. I take everything so personally. And it was actually helpful when, um, you know, a friend of mine, again, moved down to, uh, to move to another place and was working with another minister who has a much bigger church than mine. Um, but he, you know, in a more established church. But he said, you know, this, this rector had all the same questions that I did. Like, why aren't we growing exponentially? Why are more people coming? Why aren't we growing? And, and he, but his joke was, you know, how can I make all of this as much about my own personal failure as possible? Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a therapist I used to talk to, uh, used to, you know, I remember him saying to me once, he said, RJ, you need to get it through your thick head that you are not in control of anything. Anything. And that includes your emotions. You know, and a big part of that, you know, a big part of his thing, and there's actually a, a write-up in the journal about this, you know, new wave of whatever, is not helping people to sort of get to the root of their anxieties and conquer those fears, but getting people to accept the fact that it's okay to be anxious and it's okay to not have it together and to realize that how I feel right now is totally different than how I might feel 15 minutes from now. And that the best I can do is just kind of let things come and go and not try to control them. Because the more you try to sort of hold on to emotion or try to uh, chase it away, the worse it is. Just let it come. Let it go. Uh, let people come and go. Let numbers come and go. Let finances come and go. You know, so, so I, think, um, I think, you know, dying. But, but again, that only, you know, you only learn those lessons by being crucified. You know, if Eugene Peterson had come in and his, uh, his, uh, his what did he call it, his um, competitive instinct had been immediately fulfilled by a massive success, uh, he might not have anything to say to suffering people, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and so you only, you know, this, this, this desire to control everything externally and internally and have immediate gratification of everything is only extinguished uh, through death, through, through it being killed off, um, so, what is God doing with me? I have no idea. I, who, who knows? I still don't. I still have no idea. I still have no idea where I'm going to be. I mean, you know, I got paid today because it's the first. Pretty sure I'm going to get paid on the first of May. First of June, I'm not so sure about. <laughs> you know? But don't tell my wife. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, and then I, but when I come and I hear, you know, Mark Galley talk about chaos and the chaos of God's will and about, the, about uh, how, how God is not safe, that's incredibly comforting you know because i'm like okay you know where i am in this unsafe anxious place is is not a it's not a judgment on me it's just the way the world is and as i said before it's actually a sign of god's presence and not his absence is that is that is that a comprehensive enough do you want to talk about your death i don't <laughs> no i'm just i'm kidding <laughs> anything else yeah. Uh, I think, like a lot of us in this room, I, uh, I lived most of my life putting myself in situations where I thought I really could control things that were, you know, in reality and really fit. Um, and that really slapped me upside the head um, when we, my wife and I had our first child, who has that work. And that was really the first time in my life that I knew there was nothing I could do to remedy the remedy the situation, the situation was nothing. Um, and so that turned into many dark nights of the soul, 
but in, in a theology of the cross kind of way. Totally. I, and I mean, he still, my son still has that but at the same time I can look back on this experience and say, I've never been closer to my wife than I am now. I have never experienced the love of my Savior because of this situation that we had to go through. I would give anything to make it go away, but at the same time, it's been really, really good. So I think that's totally and connecting with. Absolutely. And it just goes to, you know, everyone, everyone has their impasse. Every single, every person in this room, every person you know, and even the people that you look at and you think they're so successful, they're so beautiful, they have such a perfect family, their kids are so great. I guarantee there is a massive blockage in their life that every single person has it. And, uh, you know, you know. Again, my, you know, my doctor friend, his wife and he came this close to getting divorced because he had an affair. But he would say, I've talked to him about it, he, he would say it was awful. The word he used, his preferred nomenclature for that whole experience is Nagasaki. But he says, uh, we never, their marriage survived. And he said, we, uh, we never, uh, we hold each other at night in a way now that we never did before. That this thing, which, which was the end of them, has proven to be like the best thing that ever happened in their marriage. And that just, and, and, you know, praise God. That's the way God works. So whatever your, whatever your, and that's what Paul means when he says the blockage is the way forward. You don't run away from it, you run into it. Because that's where God is. If you want to find God, go to your pain. That's where he is. That's where he's working. So is it possible to be terrified yet courageous? I th- yeah, I think so. I think so. Is it possible to be terrified and courageous at the same time? I feel mostly terrified. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think I think um, courage. Yeah, I think what what gives you courage, the real encouragement, is is again, um, it's not in you. It's in it's in God. It's in saying, you know, um, it's so pity, but you know, it's true. I don't know. Who, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds it, and so I, I can continue to walk forward. You know, um, because I, I believe in a God who died and rose again and brings life out of death, literally. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm not there yet. Like, my, I mean, right now, my kids are awesome. Like, I love my kids so much, and we're just, you know, we're waiting. I've got a nine-year-old, an eight-year-old, got a six-year-old. They're pretty awesome. I love them to death. They're incredible. And but I know, I know that the death is on its way. You know, I know that I know, I know like, I'm just, what's it going to be? You know, like, which one's going to knock up a girl first? You know, got two sons. I'm just saying, like, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. So I'm, I'm really, all I can say is, you know, you, you enjoy, you enjoy the good times and you, uh, and then, you know, when, when things come up, things come up. Um, but even there, you know, one of the greatest, one of the best things uh, Paul ever said was, you know, you want your children to have their nervous breakdowns early. 
And I think that's true. Uh, you know, you want, you want people to come to the end of themselves as quickly as possible. You want people to bottom out as young as they possibly can. Um, so, uh, so hopefully they have their, you know, massive uh, depression and nervous breakdowns in college rather than when they're 50. And, and I think, you know, you can engender a, 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 an atmosphere of openness and freedom. I think the best way to ensure that your children put off their midlife crisis as long as possible is to control and to put as much expectation on them as you can so that they're constantly feeling like they're trying to live up to what you want them to be. And then they'll wake up when they're 45 and they say, I've lived my entire life for my father and not for myself. And now I'm going to go, you know, buy a Porsche and uh, dump my wife and, you know, do all those stereotypical things. Um, so, I don't, but then again, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of, I sort of plead ignorance on that point. Like, maybe I'll have more wisdom in 15 years, but my kids are sort of too young. And right now, just really fun. And anyone more wiser want to talk about? Anyone who, who has experienced um, massive failure in parenting want to share that with the crowd? <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I mean, I hope I have the courage to when it happens to me. Yeah. And you almost think, it almost feels like it, it gets, I mean, I don't, and talking to a few of our old, you know, our, our more um, mature parishioners, it almost gets harder. You know, I, remember, I was sitting with uh, a woman having this breakfast, and she's an incredibly mature, lovely, wonderful Christian woman, and her just weeping, being like, you know, I already gave it the office, God. Like, what, why are you doing this to me now? You know, and just the, the sense that, like, there's always, you know... It's just a series of sort of escalating deaths until the final one, <laughs> you know, followed by escalating resurrections until the final one. Um, and that seems to be the way that, you know, seems to be the way God works in my life. Like, I don't, I don't think that I could have handled what he's putting me through now 10 years ago. That would have been the end of me. And now, you know, I'm sort of barely hanging on. But, you know, God is leading me into greater glory. You know, he's glorifying me the way they glorified Jesus on the cross. Well, I don't want to run two over. Um, it's like four, uh, yeah, four points. So let's, uh, unless anyone has anything burning, should we close? Okay. Lord, uh, don't really, yeah, I, I don't quite know what to say. Um, We, we try to trust you. We, I resent you sometimes, too, the way you work. We're not quite sure what you're doing. Um, I guess I hold on to that uh, in the New Testament, Paul seems to be pretty clear that not just grace, but faith is a gift. That faith is a gift that you give us. And so I pray that you would give us 
faith, especially in those um, in the in the dark places, and uh, um, and the hope and the knowledge to know that uh, you know what you're doing, and actually the, the freedom that comes with that as well. That that we don't need to be super people who do everything perfectly, um, and, and that actually we you know you don't sort of don't even want us to try, but that we can um, do what we're called to do, do what we love to do. And trust you, but please uh, um, be with us, deliver us, and, and thank you for breaking us of our idols and our desire to control as hard as it is. And um, we just pray that you would continue to deliver us uh, day by day, and then finally at the last day that you would uh, raise us to be with you forever. And we, we thank you for all that you've done for us and that our future is secure in your hands. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.